So this week we're talking about a series of essays by Suzanne Césaire from um, 1943 and 1945. They're all essays published in the journal Tropique, which she was uh, one of the co-founders and editors and helped maintain it. And Tropique was an incredibly important uh, literary and sort of anti-colonial journal for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that it was created by and run by uh, colonized people, uh, in particular uh, colonized uh, poets, intellectuals, activists in Martinique. And so what we see in so many of the Tropique essays is a combination of uh, addresses to colonialism, which, of course, uh, in that moment, in the 1940s, uh, Martinique is, uh, you know, like all of the colonized world, still a, a fully uh, legitimate colony of France, dominated, subjugated, no citizenship, all of these things. And you see that in the Suzanne Césaire essays. And so in those conditions, what's interesting to me is to see uh, how intimately the writers in Tropique understood the relationship between uh, political activism and poetics. I say uh, political activism because the political rhetoric in, in so many of these pieces from Suzanne Césaire, from M.A. Césaire, from Rene Menil, as we'll see next week, um, you know, so many of the pieces it, uh, address themselves directly to the French government, to French occupation and, and uh, colonization of the island and the structures of that colonization, as well as, you know, the, in the Suzanne Césaire essays, a number of references to Vichy France, which is the collaborationist government uh, that during World War II, French government that collaborated uh, with the Nazis under occupation. So part of that is to say something about what uh, Suzanne Césaire calls the, um, the uh, island's bourgeoisie, uh, to say that they are akin to the Vichy government, right? That they, they are collaborating with an occupying force. Now, what that means in the moment of 1943 and 1945 is really significant, significant to contemplate because when you see it in that frame, this is the great shame of France to have, to have lost its, uh, its uh, part of the war with Germany, right? Uh, with within an incredibly short time to have folded as a military and as a government, but also not just to have lost in war. I mean, in war there are winners and losers, but to have lost to the Germans and then had prominent and very significant numbers of of uh, French politicians, military people, and everyday citizens uh, em emphatically and enthusiastically embrace German occupation and German values, Nazi values, not even German values, Nazi values. If you're interested in this, I just as a side note, if you're interested in this moment in France, right, in uh, the European context of this, um, the uh, long documentary film, The Sorrow and the Pity, Marcelo Fou, um, is an absolute masterpiece and always worth watching. I had thought about watching it uh, for class, but I think that was a bit of a sidetrack. But what's important for me in the context of reading Suzanne Césaire and reading all of these pieces from Tropique is that uh, Césaire is thinking about the Vichy government already in critical terms, already seeing it as the shame of France that then can be rhetorically brought 
to talk about the the colonial bourgeoisie, right? Colonial Caribbeans, right? Afro-Caribbeans who work with colonial forces in order to maintain uh, European hegemony over the island. So this, uh, for me, is this, I don't want to call it a subplot because it's right uh, there in the words and right on the surface, but it's just a really strong context for the political dimension of this. And that political dimension is joined to the uh, question of a poetics. Now, what I mean by poetics, and this is part of what I wanted to clarify or just say a little something about uh, in this piece, and obviously we'll uh, discuss it in detail in our course session, but to think about uh, poetics in this way, that what we mean by poetics, what, what Suzanne Césaire means by poetics and what I mean, therefore, in, in talking about uh, her essays, is uh, this notion of bringing something into being. Right, that poetics, the word poetics, is linked to the Greek term poiesis, which had this deep sense of creativity, this capacity to make something. Right, It has a, a, a fabrication and fabulation uh, a function to it. Right, And that's why poetics are so important, is that they actually make something out of bits and pieces, out of nothing, sort of drop from the imagination. It depends on how one thinks about creativity. In some ways, that's what a poetics is always about. A poetics is asking the question, what is a poetics, right? How is it possible? This is especially important as a question in the colonial context because Suzanne Césaire is asking uh, across these essays, uh, how do we think about a poetics in Martinique under colonial occupation? that is doubled in terms of occupation is doubled by German occupation and the Vichy government. So all of these conditions, some of which stretch back a handful of years, uh, most of which stretch back centuries, they bear upon Martinican or or Afro-Caribbean subjectivity in this really intense and unrelenting way, such that one has to ask, and we'll see this again, when, uh, especially when we talk about V.S. Naipaul. This is a, a really uh, uh, important question in mid-century Caribbean thought, which is, you know, what is, it, what is possible to create in this kind of place that has lived for centuries under a particular kind of domination, a domination that doesn't leave the dominated people to themselves, but instead tries to remake them. This is what colonialism does remake them from the inside as alienated creatures, as uh, what Fanon will call when we read Black Skin, White Masks, uh, uh, you know, those who live in the zone of non-being. So thinking about what it means to create is a question for the human person. And that's part of what uh, Suzanne Césaire is, is addressing in this. It's partly a question about the human person. But in addition to being a question of the human person, it's a question of the possibilities of life after colonialism or even life uh, simply outside colonialism during colonial rule. The question is, you know, how is it possible to make things? How is it possible to make a reality or to make words for and figures for and ways of talking about analyzing and representing Caribbean reality in a colonial situation? Now, that's important that then you can see already, not just for the psyche, right, for the individual poet 
or writer, how do I make myself uh, capable of creating? But also for a nation or a people or a community that's engaged in anti-colonial struggle, it's always going to be this question, like, how, what are we trying to make and what are our capacities to make? I'll come back to this over and over, probably to the point of being obnoxious, but it's very important across this course to think and just across thinking about critical theory generally, how does the theory make it possible for the theorist to be? Now, I'll use a, an analogous case. When Ralph Ellison, one of Ralph Ellison's cre uh, critiques of Richard Wright in the African-American context is that Richard Wright's novels are so pessimistic and nihilistic, it makes it seem as if African-Americans have no words or capacity to live in their world. Yet Richard Wright is someone who's created worlds and created words to describe that life. So if you don't have a theory that can explain the theorist, there's something wrong with the theory, right? That the theory is missing something or perhaps is wrongheaded from the beginning. And I think that surrealism broadly, but Suzanne Césaire's iteration of it in, the, in these essays is really um, cognizant of this problem. And it is a problem, and it's a theoretical problem that very few theorists actually address directly. And I think Suzanne Césaire does in these essays, which is just to say, again, how is it possible in a colonial context to describe the brutality of colonialism? It's a decimation of the human person and of human communities and histories and memories. How is it possible under colonialism to create? That's a that's the question of poetics, but it's also a question of politics. Because part of what anti-colonial politics has to answer to is life after colonialism, the post-colony. How do we live in the post-colony? Is that possible? Do we have a vision of who and what the colonized are and can be such that arrival in the post-colony, the, co the colonizer goes away, you remake your world, institutions, education systems, culture, and so forth. Do you have enough, or do you have, a, not enough, do you have a vision and content that vision of what the human person is, of what the Martinican is, of what the Caribbean is? So for me, I, I really find that to be uh, the most, uh, important, uh, I'll call it like the impulse of these essays, where they're trying to, to get us. And that way, the way that Suzanne Césaire gets us to this question of how is it possible to make worlds in anticipation of the post-colony, and how is it possible to make things like worlds under colonial rule? How is it possible to access that capacity in a person right, and in a community, is really at the heart of Suzanne Césaire's, uh, I think, deepest commentaries. Now, there's a number of places uh, that I could anchor this, this characterization and this, this way of thinking about Suzanne Césaire. Um, I want to start with uh, The Great Camouflage, which is probably her most famous essay, essay and I think rightly so. I think it's very uh, compelling. I think it's it's uh, really interesting and has some really provocative moments to it. I think that there's, this is on page 159, there's this really interesting 
comment that she makes where she says that the West Indian, and here she's talking uh, about uh, both white and, and, and black uh, West Indians. This is colo still colonial rule, so there are uh, not a lot, but a, a not insignificant number of white French people on the island for generations. He says, she says, um, they know the Métis has some of their blood, that they both belong to Western civilization. And this idea of belonging to Western civilization, I think, is the crux of the problem in the Great Camouflage. The crux of the problem in the Great Camouflage is, again, as I said, how can the intellectual take account of him or herself by giving a characterization of the conditions, in this case, abject conditions, in which they live? Part of the problem, I think, for Suzanne Césaire lies in this commentary that I, this comment uh, that I just uh, read. Because in that comment, in saying that they both belong to Western civilization, she's actually asking the question and making the comment uh, that, you know, if you belong to Western civilization as a colonized person, you're in their grasp, right? You are their possession. And so one can't think in the context of Western civilization in order to create, right? That thinking, thinking that is a poetics, cannot take root in Western civilization. Now, I will say as an aside, I actually find this to be a, a, a somewhat problematic or at least a deeply disputable claim. But it's a claim that's at the heart of black studies, really, honestly, which is in what ways can we say that black people in the Americas are part of Western culture and part of, quote, the West, right? Obviously, uh, the, the figure of, of, of the African-descended uh, person in the Americas, right, the figure of the black Americas in the white Western imagination is an image of absolute abjection. But there is this question of, you know, how many centuries does one have to have lived in the horizon of the West until one has claim over that term West and Western civilization. So this is more of a question for later in the semester, but I did want to raise it here because Suzanne Césaire is going in the opposite direction. Because one can make an argument that so long as black people in the Americas have been speaking European languages and creating absolutely impactful, transformative global culture, that that is a taking possession of the West and making it your own, right? But that's not Suzaire, Suzanne Césaire's uh, orientation. That will be an orientation of some of the thinkers were to come, uh, that are to come, because that's thinking about subverting, appropriating, and transforming the meaning of quote the West or Western culture. So it's a kind of insurgent idea. Um, but it's not Suzanne Césaire's idea. And here we see her uh, you know, dialogue with the negritude movement, uh, in particular, of course, M.A. Césaire, just especially to give a, a reference to our previous reading. And that question of negritude is important because as we see in the essay, uh, the, the two pieces that uh, reference Frobenius and civilization, that Suzanne Césaire is very committed, like M.A. Césaire, to a notion of African civilization, to some sort of vital 
force or vital energy. That, that's how she puts it in these, these essays. Some sort of vital energy that comes from somewhere other than Western culture. And that that vital force that comes from Africa, right? That's the other of Western culture in her case. That that vital urge is actually what makes a poetics possible. Okay, so already she's answering that question with this, this word and this idea of civilization. She's already answering the question, you know, how can the poet or how can the one who wants to make worlds account for their own capacity to make worlds? Well, that's what we get when we listen or when we um, think about civilization. Right. We get an answer to that because this vital urge of Africa, this vital energy exists, right? And Frobenius, uh, who we'll talk about a little bit in class and, and maybe is, is a separate sort of topic of discussion, is a German ethnologist, you know, sort of travelogue writer and, and what we might now just call an anthropologist uh, who tried to document various parts of Africa and say, like, there is this common vital energy. Right, he's a, a white European uh, writer, who Suzanne says there, you know, takes as a resource for thinking about how a poetics can be made in the West Indies, for Black people by Black people about Black life. Now, there's that metaphysical, we could say, like abstract, abstract in a positive way for me, abstract idea of what civilization is documented ethnographically, anthropologically, however you want to put it, by Frobenius. And, and Suzanne Césaire embraces that and thinks of it as a path towards liberation, as did Frobenius. I mean, he himself had sort of what we would now call a sort of multicultural view of civilization. It was, it was not the same kind of hegemonic thinker uh, that one would, uh, I think, typically associate with your white Europeans talking about Africa. But he did have a, a, you know, a kind of multicultural view of this a plurality of civilizations is for him a positive right um you know there are lots of critical ways we could address this and think about this and so forth but what's important is what suzanne cesare does with it that she uses frobenius i think really to embellish ahead of time right so it's a decade a little over a decade before M.A. Césaire's culture and colonization, but she's already embellished with some sort of anthropological uh, roots uh, what M.A. Césaire will say in 1956 in Culture and Colonization about the nature of civilization and its relation to culture. Now she's given us in these essays on civilization some sort of roots for those claims that M.A. Césaire was making, right, by way of another person. But she also has this other root and this comes from the great camouflage and is maybe the most interesting part for me, I, I, I will say. And it's at the very close of the essay, the um, last uh, four, three, four paragraphs, right, where Suzanne Césaire has sort of, I would say, like the metaphysical account of civilization in these other essays, right, that it's this big... Uh, nature of part of the nature of reality, this sort of big abstract question of, of vital energies. But then she shifts at the end of, of the great camouflage to talk about what I would call the phenomenological dimension of accounting for a poetics, how the poet, how the writer can uh, create worlds and create things. And I say it's phenomenological because it's rooted 
in a sense of, of lived experience. The metaphysical question of civilization, you might say, well, well, you know, how is there any evidence for that? Well, you can go read Frobenius, right? And you can go read all kinds of other writers who have written on bits and pieces of culture across sub-Saharan and sometimes Northern Africa as well, um, talked about black Africa and said, you know, you can look at all these different things from different parts of the continent and find continuity and sameness or similarities or family resemblances that maybe point to, right, give you some indicator that points you towards this notion of a vital energy and of civilization. You know, whether it's questions of, of you know, rhythm, rhythm uh, aesthetic possibility, uh, aesthetic sensibilities, um, uh, you know, cuisine, sound of music, structure of languages, uh, religious habits, and so forth, right? There's just so many ways that one can go about that anthropological evidence, but that evidence is never the basis for a claim about civilization. It is rather an indicator of like, well, you see these things, you can kind of see it like a symptom, right? Where you never see, um, you never see the flu, but you have aches, you have a fever, you have chills. Um, those become indicators, right? The symptoms become indicators of the thing you can't see. So the metaphysical claim about civilization is rooted in the symptomology of Frobenius's work. But the phenomenological dimension that comes at the end of the great camouflage is important to me because it's where Suzanne Césaire tries to get it back, get this question back to our lived experience, right? And to think, uh, I shouldn't say our lived experience, to her lived experience, to the lived experience of black Caribbeans, right? So it's a very specific uh, question of phenomenological uh, analysis that it really is getting inside or giving it in this case a characterization of the lived experience of Afro-Caribbeans. And so when she talks here at the end, she talks about uh, Bergilda's hips have assumed. There's this really uh, amazing moment where she's talking about dancers. And she says, and this is on 160, I'm going to read it. She says, all around them, the tropical night swells with rhythm. Bergilda's hips have assumed in the oscillations that surge from the chasms on volcano, volcano flanks, their appearance of cataclysm. And it is Africa itself, which beyond the Atlantic and centuries before the slave traders, dedicates the look of solar lust exchanged by the dancers on its West Indian children. The look of solar lust exchanged by dancers on its West Indian children. That's an amazing phrase because what she's doing here is locating the presence of this metaphysical thing called civilization that Frobenius was able to, to, to say something about or try to give an account of through a symptomology, right, of Afri in, in, in African culture. And she's trying to say over here in the West Indies, where do we find Africa in our everyday lived experience? Well, where we find Africa in our everyday lived experience is starting with, right, and maybe ending with, right, embodied language, right, the dancer. So the dancer's movements, right, where she says, you know, that, that uh, the uh, hips assume, her hips assume the appearance of cataclysm and Africa itself. I mean, it's just a, 
an amazing like way of reading and interpreting movement. We'll see this again also when we, we when we talk about uh, Antonio Benitez Rojo, not to give stuff away, but to just anticipate this is a common theme where uh, Benitez Rojo will say like, Caribbeanness is not just about sort of Creole language or histories of various kinds of maronage and resistance fights and independence struggles. It's also about the way people walk. And this is what she's getting at here, you know, decades before Benitez Rojo. I'm not, I don't think that he, he borrowed it from her. I have no evidence that he read her. Um, but she was already on to this, right? That idea that incarnate uh, expression, right? The way we express with our bodies can tell us something about the presence of civilization in those bodies. And so she says, I'm just going to go on here. Their cries proclaim in a raucous and generous voice that Africa is here, present, that it is waiting immensely chased despite the stormy, devouring colonization by the whites. Because right? that's what the whites did, is they tried to, 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 um, to absolutely devour Africa and spit it out and take it from the enslaved, but it, it wasn't successful, right? That there remained something of Africa, in this case, in the hips of a dancer. And across these faces, this is going on, constantly bathed in the effluvium of the sea, around the islands, across these bounded and small lands surrounded with water like huge impassable gulfs, passes the remarkable wind that has come from a continent. So it's a trade winds reference, right? It's like civilization comes like the wind from Africa, like, and it's uh, you know, an, an, an analogy. The Caribbean-Africa, thanks to the drums and the nostalgia for terrestrial places, lives on in the hearts of these island peoples who will satisfy their nostalgia and i love that question who will satisfy their nostalgia right, so that's what the poet does for suzanne cesare the poet is the one who satisfies the nostalgia for africa and that nostalgia is expressed not in oh i wish i was in africa but in dance of like you know you're you know, the dancer's trying to bring Africa to the surface of the body and to bring it into the energy of the performance, right? Into the energy and the sensuality of the dancers between each other and for those who are, who are looking on, right? Or participating as well alongside them. But then there is this last thing, and then I'll, I will conclude. And it's the, the final paragraph of uh, The Great Camouflage where... You know, these are the sort of two two uh, lived experiences that Suzanne Cesare really appeals to, to try to tell the story of how surrealism blended with Frobenius's notion of civilization can give an account of how the poet can be a poet, how a poetics is possible by a coloni by the colonized themselves, and that la this last paragraph is full of, of um, flora, right? It's all environmental imagery. It's all about flowers and vines and trees. Even there when, when uh, she talks about the effluvium of the sea bathing, uh, the dancer bathing the West Indies, ba bathing West Indians, right? It's the, the sensuality, not only of the dance, but of the smell and the color and the look of landscape. And I don't mean broad or abstract landscape. 
I mean landscape in this sense, right? Landscape here as what uh, is populated by flowers and trees and vines. You know, if I don't know if people uh, look things up when they read, um, you know, like Canna and um, the Sea of Lava, Liana, Vegetal Fire. There's just so many like blended images that are about flowers and vines and volcanoes and oceans. And all of these things come together to say, you know, where does the poet turn to make a poetics? A poet turns in order to make a poetics to what is immediately in front of them. But what is immediately in front of the poet, landscape, flower, dance, is not simply imminent to that world it occupies. Rather, what is in the world is laden and sedimented with Africa, laden and sedimented with civilization. That civilization is called forth in the dancer's hips. The Caribbeanness, right? What uh, maybe the culture to civilization that M.A. Cesare was talking about. The flowers and the ocean and the smell of the island then becomes that cultural expression, that cultural root that is also linked to civilization. So, in on the one hand, I think that this essay begins with the sensibility common to all sorts of. Uh, ways of thinking about the oppressed and the colonized of there is no grounds for a poetics there's no way to get your footing Suzanne Cesare by the end of the great camouflage has already told a completely different story which is that the poet actually has the one who who makes a poetics the poet already has an abundance of possibility almost too much right the dancer whose hips and the rhythms of the drums that connect back to a civilization and satisfies the nostalgia of the, of the black West Indian. But then also that cultural root in this place, this small place of Martinique, which is the flower, which is the root, which is the effluvium of the sea. And between all of these, right, all of the landscape and all of the, 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 sedimented meanings of Africa that have carried in music, sound, and movement, there is a possibility not only for a poetics, but a poetics oriented towards and creating and making a people who can live in the post-colony. <laughs>